Please enter your access code followed by the pound or hash sign. I am Alex Kaufman, and you have dialed in to PodSAM, an off-season project of me, the Wintry Mix podcast guy, and Sam Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. This is the sixth installment of our six-episode batch derived from the highlights of Sam's Summit Series, which brought together industry leaders, aka the mentors, with a question-asking audience of 10 middle management up-and-comer types from resorts across the U.S. Being the finale of this year's Summit Series means it's the roundtable, where the mentees get to pepper the mentors with questions. It also means the next podcast that come out here on PodSAM will likely explore some new formats. So stick around for what's next. Should be fun. Because this was derived from actual conference calls, there's a bit of typical phone interference and such, but it's totally worth it. Episode six mentors you are about to hear from are John Rice, GM of Sierra at Tahoe, Jody Churich, longtime Powder Corp executive, and Blaze Carrig of Vail Resorts. These are all voices you have heard in prior episodes, and episode six is a long one, so let's jump in. Mentor full bios are available on saminfo.com and in the immediately prior episodes. The roundtable is moderated by Paul Tallner of High Peaks Group with help from Sam's Sarah Bordeaux. Sam publisher Olivia Rowan will kick us off. The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. All right, Sarah, so we're good to go? We're good to go. Great. Good afternoon to everyone, and welcome to the final call of the SAM Summit Series. Uh, My name is Olivia Rowan. I'm the publisher of SAM Magazine. For this call, our facilitator extraordinaire, Paul Talner, will invite each mentee to ask their questions, and then we'll facilitate a dialogue with the um, advisors. Uh, First, a few notes here. Um, Our mission for this program was pretty simple. We wanted to engage the next generation of leaders into dialogue with the current guard, um, our advisors, and ignite the process of sharing this knowledge that they have. Um, We've learned in all of these conversations that the people you connect with and get inspired by uh, throughout your career will help define the leaders you become. And really, that's what the Summit Series is about. It's about connecting and and, uh, engaging and sharing this information Um, between the current guard and the the up-and-coming future leaders. I would like to make some important thank yous um, before we dive into things. Um, First, I want to thank our mentees, uh, Nate Ellis from Boreal and Joe Forte from Blue Mountain PA and Sarah Demons from Pat's Peak and Taya Hardy from Sierra Tahoe, Brandon Schwartz from Heavenly California, Andrew Lenoy from Jay Peak, Megan Altmo from Red River, Anya Whitaker from Lake Louise, Alberta, Andrew Roy from Eldora, Colorado, and Kyle Gornell from Steamboat. I also want to thank, our, of course, our uh, mentors uh, who have been um, generously giving their time each call and sharing their knowledge. I uh, can't thank you enough. And those advisors are Jody Church, uh, John Rice. Chris Blombach, Blaze Kerrig, Barb Green, and Bill Jensen. Uh, Bill is biking in Italy, lucky him, and Barb got called off to the Forest Service meetings, but we thank them anyways in their absence. I would also like to give um, a thank you to Paul Callner of High Peaks Group for his excellent facilitation of these calls. I hope that some of you have 
read some of his leadership articles in SAM and our other publication, Adventure Park Insider, um, and check out his website for the other services that he provides uh, to companies. And of course, uh, we couldn't have done this program without our own Sarah. Her passion and vision and organization for this program has made it the success it is. And as a future leader herself, um, she knew exactly what would make this work. So I can't thank Sarah enough for all of her good work. And finally, um, our two partners, Colorado State University and Mountain Guard. And so I just want to thank on behalf of Brian Roster for Mountain Guard uh, for them believing in this program and supporting us so that we could pull it off. And finally, I'd like to thank Natalie Uwe of Colorado State University for their help with the deep dive after every call and making sure our mentees gained as much background on the topic as possible. And now I will uh, hand it off to uh, Paul and our um, esteemed and knowledgeable mentors, Jody, John, uh, Blaze, will help us answer these questions. So thank you very much once again, advisors, mentors, for sharing your expertise and stories. Paul, take it away. Thanks so much, Olivia, and welcome, everybody. Really delighted to be with you today and to be facilitating this. I think this is probably going to be the easiest facilitation because the mentors or mentees are going to have a chance to ask the questions directly. First question is from uh, Kyle, uh, Kyle Gornell from Steamboat Colorado, a question for uh, Jody and John. Kyle asks, uh, from a management perspective, is there ever a disconnect between the people making the decisions and the people implementing them? If so, how do you overcome this disconnect? Paul, it's Jody. I'd be happy to dive in if, if that's good. So, so Kyle, here, I think it's a fantastic question because this happens very often, quite frankly. And I think that the one thing is that as long as everyone is super clear on identifying the problem that you're solving for first and foremost, um, yes, it happens all the time. And it's a delicate balance, right, of inclusiveness without um, decision by committee. So ultimately, I think setting a clear strategy and expectations helps to eliminate some of the disconnect um, and getting clear alignment from the start. Um, and that has to come from the top. Really, as a leader, you have to set the stage and make sure it's super clear as to what problem you're actually solving for and that everybody's in agreement as to what we're trying to solve. Um, it makes it a lot easier um, to keep everyone connected uh, when final decisions are made. I would agree this, John. Uh, clarity is the key word. The people making the decisions to be successful, I think it's important that at the top that you define the role of the leadership teams, the, the GM, you know, setting the visions, kind of the 30,000-foot level, charting the course, if you will, who we are, where we're going, kind of all the mission stuff. Everything has to kind of flow from there. And then the role of your senior team whether, uh, for example, marketing would oversee all brand, everything that relative to the brand filters, all the way down to events and uniforms, decisions, uh, which kind of hat should we get? That kind of stuff should go through that. HR has all the cultural norms, how we communicate, training, code of conduct, if you will, all the policies. Uh, accounting would be all the budget-related business plan, capital plans, purchasing decisions. Uh, profit centers would weigh in, of course, on their issues, operations in terms of what's open, what gets groomed, patrol, uh, maintenance, same kind of thing, where to prioritize repairs or, or uh, you know, what needs their attention. So 
at that level of that senior team, there, there's robust dialogue that typically will happen behind closed doors when they meet. And what they need to do is, is hash it out, and the GM needs to kind of be the referee of that, allow them to have robust dialogue, maybe disagree. Maybe there's conflicting reasons why one decision might be made over another, uh, and then work it out. And before you leave the room, you put what's best for the resort ahead of your personal interest, and then everyone walks out, everybody's all in. I think that's really important that the goal alignment has to kind of, everything has to kind of feed back to we made this decision because of this and we're all going to support it and not have someone go out of the room going, well, I don't agree. And so I'm going to be soft on that um, policy or that decision. I'll give you an example. When we opened the resort this year, we went out and looked at probably the, the least amount of snow we've ever seen. And we had all the right people standing on the snow looking at each other. The snowmaking grooming people were there for operations. Marketing was there talking about early season expectations. Finance was there looking at how do we do this with minimum staff, profit centers. So we all looked at each other and kind of everybody looked each other in the eye and said, should we do this? And the decision was, yes, let's go. Let's send it. And that, that kind of became our <laughs> comment that we're going to send it. And we worked through all of our stuff before we came down and said, we're going to open. And some people's eyes were wide open, like, wow, we've, we never opened on this. But we knew that there was weather in the forecast and snowmakers and groomers were confident that they could pull it off. So once the decision's made, nobody's second guessing it and the whole everyone's in. And if someone does, then it's important for leaders to pull those people aside and say, look, we, we talked through all this and this is what's best for this company to make this decision. So it's having that clarity and it's having everyone buy into the decision and away we go. The same thing for closing. We we had the same thing. We had a lot of pressure from guests to continue to stay open. And then you've got uh, accounting saying, well, you know, we're going to lose money if we do this. And so you've got to balance that between the finance side, the operational side of what you can and can't do. But once that decision's made, it's all in. We're all in. We make the decision. Away we go. And uh, not everyone may agree up front, but it's important that it's explained and everyone buys in. That's great. Thanks. Um, just a quick reminder about the question. I'll ask uh, Blaze to chime in on this as well. Uh, from a management perspective, is there ever a disconnect between the people making the decisions and those implementing them? And how do you overcome this disconnect? Uh, give Blaze want to give you an opportunity to chime in as well. Yeah, one of the one of the things that that I've I found works the best. There's there often is a disconnect. And I find that the disconnect comes from people like not understanding the why of the decision. So I, I've kind of really got down to the simple, you've got to explain the why of every decision. Otherwise people, particularly with, with harder or controversial decisions, they tend to come up, you know, with their own reasons. And I think once, um, you know, once the, the decision, you know, as long as the decision is put out there and explained to folks, uh, and then you have to give them a chance to discuss it because I've also I've also found that um, the reason that you made the decision that your why um, that there might be um, you know something that you missed and people can come back and you know basically help you not necessarily change the decision but adjust the decision uh, because there might be some factor in there that affects something that you didn't foresee and by explaining hey here's my decision here's why I made my decision. Um, and, and giving people a chance to kind of give feedback on that, you, um, you bring yourself closer to alignment. Um, people understand why you did it, which is, I think, critical. 
and it helps to break down that disconnect. That's great. Thanks. The next question is from Sarah Demons at, uh, from Pat's Peak. Uh, Sarah? Hi, yes. Thank you. Uh, my question is, how can we keep seasonal employees engaged and returning year after year? Here we go, John Blaze, Jody. Um, well, we consider re-recruitment as part of the overall recruitment strategy. Uh, it's something that's critical. When you look at housing and staffing issues right now, we're all facing them across the country. We, we value people that have a car, know how to get to the resort, know how to wear the uniform, actually have a place to live or at least a couch to sleep on. So those people are important to us. And if they are people we want back, we want to invite back. We don't just assume they're going to show up. We know that they're at risk from getting picked off from another company or a higher paying job. So it's a, it's an actual re-recruitment strategy. I think what's important in, in the final weeks of their employment, whether they're J1s leaving in March or whether it's people making it to the end of the season or, or somebody leaving a month early, if these are the folks that we want back, you know, we'll take a little extra time with them and make sure that their supervisors talk to them about, first of all, thanking them for uh, making it as far as they did and making sure they got some feedback on their performance and letting them know that we really do want them to come back instead of just assuming they will. Uh, at our end-of-season party, for example, all the leaders have to be there. I know they don't want to go. They're, they're tired. They don't want to show up at the party. I make them go and thank every single employee that's there that they do want back and make sure that they get a honest in the uh, look in the eye, handshake, thanks for everything. You know, hope you can come back and join us again next year. Another really, really critical one for us, we do an end of season right people review and each supervisor makes a list of the folks that they think have high potential and perhaps uh, are ready for something bigger in the company, whether it's within that department or perhaps in another department. And we'll ask them questions about who are they, what are their skills, um, you know, what do we need to do to, to offer them training or is it off season training or opportunities? And then we'll go so far as to help them find a summer job. And what we find with that is that often we can place someone with another employer in town. They love having our employees. And then the deal is we get them back in the fall. They have to promise they give them back to us. But perhaps uh, there's skills they can learn. For example, in marketing, there's a couple of uh, snow reporters that did a great job for us. We want to keep them engaged and in the basin. And so we're working with a local TV station to get them and, and a um, – a PR firm to get them jobs in the summer where they can improve their skills and then come back to us. And then the last thing I'll say is over the summer, there's an opportunity to keep people connected by having social events like just simple summer picnic, beach party, whatever that might be, and making sure they know that they're still in the family, they're still connected. Um, again, the importance of housing right now is one of our biggest issues and uh, so it's, it's it's making sure that we stay connected with these folks that already have proven that they can do the job they've made it through the season we do want them back so it's really re-recruiting and romancing them back as opposed to just hoping they show up yeah i think john covered a lot of a lot of the right ground there you know i think you know creating um creating a good employee experience overall, whether actually it's for the seasonal people or, or the year-round people, I think it's it's the same. And I think that goes a long way towards getting retention and return. Um, and, you know, that covers a lot of things. We do an employee engagement survey every year 
to really see from the employee's perspective, you know, what's working, what's not working. And, and we dive down into each, each actual specific department and try to get granular about, you know, what that particular experience is like in that department for that leader. And, um, you know, I think the thing that the value of that is not just taking the survey, but making sure that you, you do action on it and that you're, you know, that the leaders of each area are, are making the adjustments and learning from those uh, comments. And so that when employees do come back, they see, uh, you know, improvement. And I think that alone goes a long way because they know that their participation and their input is, is taken seriously. You know, I think the recognition John talked about is really key, making sure employees know that um, they're doing a valued job and those things can happen formally uh, through the recognition events and the, and the season parties. But also I think managers and supervisors that take time to stop and employee workspaces through the year and actually talk uh, and chat with employees as opposed to just blowing through those places, you know, making a personal connection uh, goes a long way as well. Jody? Yeah, I would just add a little little bit of a left turn here is uh, with Woodward, we have a little bit different situation on the employee recruiting, but culture and community is first and foremost one of the big parts of what really entices and keeps people coming back to our brand and, and really at Powder too. It, it really focusing on the lifestyle sport aspect of, of what and why people come and work for us to begin with. And I think uh, we, we round that out in a couple of different ways. We have um, what we call a My Powder app, and that keeps all of our platform um, enterprise-wide employees connected. Um, we post stories. We post um, features on different employees, and that seems to to be working really well, keeping employees engaged. Um, I would say also, and I know all resorts don't have this opportunity necessarily, but as, as resorts are getting more into year-round businesses, uh, I think that's an important key is that we are able now to keep staff employed um, from a more consistent basis year-round. And I know that that's helped. We do have um, employees that are working at our ski resorts in the winter and, and flexing over to our, our summer camps in the summer. And uh, keeping people engaged in in sport and and in in our business enterprise has been really beneficial. I mean, it's 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 definitely um, rearing its head with the economy the way it is to to keep staff. Um, and so, keeping that culture and community together is really really a key cornerstone. And and we have found that the that the company wide app has been really beneficial. Can I just add one thing? This, John, we do something similar with a Facebook page that's uh, for employees only. All the events that are coming up, things they need to know, discounts in town at different restaurants, job opportunities either here or in town. Um, you see things people post car for sale. I'm leaving the country and bought a car, you know, for $200 or something. Ride? To, I need a ride to the Bay Area on Tuesday, so they feel connected again to that culture and that community piece that that Jody's talking about is important. So they feel part of something, even though they're not employed in the off season, it, it's really helpful. And then to Blaze's point, we do with a climate survey, I would agree that you have to get down to the detail and get back to the employees with, we heard you, here's what you said. 
here's what we're going to do differently. And you might not take every suggestion, but you do show them that the survey wasn't just an exercise. You actually are listening to your frontline employees, and when they tell you something's annoying, you're going to focus on it and maybe make some changes or, or try to improve a situation so they really do feel like they're they're listened to and connected. And I think that's so key. Once they feel disconnected, then they're free agents and they're gone. So. The PodSAM conversation continues after this quick thank you to PodSAM and Summit Series partner, Mountain Guard. Mountain Guard has been serving the ski industry since 1962, providing resort special coverages, education, claims handling, and risk management expertise. Learn more at mountainguard.com. This first segment, actually, the first 10 minutes were the theme of those questions were around management skills, and uh, we've broken the questions down into uh, categories. The next category that we're going to be talking a little bit about is uh, career growth, a topic, of course, that is very important to uh, our mentees. Okay, so Nate's question. Uh, Nate is from uh, Boreal, Soda Springs, California. Uh, his question is, as we develop, have the potential to move into more senior roles within the industry, what advice can you provide to us that you wish you would have received yourself? Let's start with Blaze and then go to Jody. And then, of course, John, you can chime in as well. There's a lot of things I guess I learned along the way that I wish I learned earlier. Um, one of the big ones for me was that it's not about me um, and what I did uh, and my own personal achievements, but really uh, what I could accomplish uh, with other people. And, um, you know, that, you know, what I accomplished with the group that I had working for me directly, but even beyond that, what I, what I could do with my peers, uh, by breaking barriers between when I was a ski patrol manager, not just worrying about, which I did for a long time, I kind of obsessed about, um, you know, how I did with my group, how good the patrol was and a real breakthrough for me from a, a leadership standpoint was to realize that uh, it was, uh, you know, a, a larger view of the whole company that really would uh, help success for the company and working with uh, how could we help, how could the patrol help lift operators uh, do their job better? How could we help ski school do their job better? And uh, in that, those days, um, those things were um, not easy to do, learning to be, uh, to manage with your peers as opposed to just manage the people that work for you was uh, a good leadership challenge for me. And one that I found, you know, helped me uh, grow as a leader more and also help the company's uh, success more um, by having that broader view. I think, you know, another one was to, to have a brand. I didn't necessarily have a leadership brand when I started and over time I, I formulated one, and I, I think if I had formulated one earlier, it might have, uh, it would have maybe helped me uh, articulate what I wanted to get done. But, but my brand was kind of simple, but it worked for me, which was uh, safety, service, and uh, financial responsibility. And I found that if I, I, I put that brand in front of people that I was working with and was very upfront, what does that look like? You know, how does that brand um, basically um appear in the in the real world and, and what kind of things make that brand come to life in the business that I had a lot uh, a lot easier time to help accomplishing the things that I was trying to get accomplished I guess one uh, one more that I'll, I'll put out was uh, seeking critical feedback 
um, I think is something that I learned later in my career that could have helped me earlier in my career, which is, you know, going to, to other leaders um, and people that I worked for and really asking for some critical feedback so that I could focus uh, more on my, uh, my weaknesses and not just be working always to my strengths. And I think it helped me, you know, it helped me put balance to my leadership uh, persona. I wish I'd I wish I had done that a lot earlier as well. Thanks, Blaze. Jody. Yeah, I think that you know, looking back, I I was definitely cut my teeth in the ilk of margin management and yield management and really that financial discipline. And what I so starting out my career, that was really the basis and foundation for for how I started. And looking back now, um, what the the key vital points of really true leadership is, is understanding and building the right team. Um, You're only as strong as your team. So looking back now, uh, I really feel like um, skill, aptitude, and attitude are just so crucial in being successful as a leader. Um, I think that what I've learned is you know, building a strong all-star team is so much more important than uh, a team of all-stars, if you will. You have to have a a really complementary, diverse team that is very trustworthy of each other. For me, that was just huge. Also, I think performance leadership development was not a big focus back um, when I was coming up in my career, and I, I am finding now how important and crucial that is to my leaders. I now currently, with uh, the platform and business portfolio that I'm managing, I have a lot of young, really talented people um, leading our businesses, but you know, giving them the right tools to be successful is crucial. Um, I also, I would say another really big cornerstone um, looking back now is change management wasn't something that you saw very often in management and leadership. And I, I really feel now that it's, it's important to identify, you know, your, your yellow and red flags sooner than later and, and be able to act upon them. So those are kind of the, the big pivotal moments. Um, when I look back now, I wish I would have known sooner. Thanks, Jody. John? Well, a couple of I was fortunate early in my career to have a gentleman on my review tell me that adaptability is the key to survival. And I said, yeah, okay, so dinosaurs aren't here anymore. But the way he explained it to me, it made so much sense because he said, you've joined an industry where adaptability is such a key attribute. You're constantly faced with change, whether it's weather changes, economic changes, all the things that can affect a successful or not so successful season, your ability to adapt will really be the key to your success. And so I share that every chance I get when I'm teaching a class or working with managers here. They're probably sick of hearing me say it here. Um, Another great uh, mentor shared with me that your personal measure of success really with your company should be to contribute more than you cost on a daily basis. So as you sit there and you have some days when you're in the high performance zone and you're just knocking stuff out and you're getting stuff done. And then you have those days where you just, you're just taking up space and kind of not really advancing the ball. 
you really have to look at it on a daily basis and say, did I contribute more today than what I cost this company? And if you add up your wage and your benefits and all that, it, it might be surprising how much you need to do. And you think nobody notices, but believe me, people uh, above you know when you're contributing and you're not just taken away. And then the third and probably the best one that uh, was given to me years ago when I was sort of at a stagnant part of my career where I'd been an operations manager for a number of years and I I just was kind of stuck being the director of operations at two different resorts and I had a guy say well he says operations managers are you know they're a dime a dozen there's a there's a lot of them in the industry and they're all really really good and so you can just be another one of those or do you want to strive for more I said well no I want to go higher and he, I, how do I get there and he said if it is to be, it is up to me. And I went, hmm. So I started working on some self-improvement and realizing that someone wasn't going to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you, you seem like a nice guy. Come over here. I'm going to give you this job. And so the self-improvement stuff that I did at that time, it was cassettes. So I'm dating myself here. <laughs> but it was all the Tony Robbins stuff and, and reading books and, and John Wooden and people that I just really admired. Like, what are their traits and how do they get success? And I had to really make an effort outside of work to improve my skill sets and, and my understanding and uh, of how things work. And I've tried to share that with people as well, that it really comes down to you and what you're willing to do. And if you are, if you, you can be a victim or you can say, it's up to me, I'm going to go make this happen. And so that advice came at a great time for me. And once I turned that corner, opportunities were coming at me. I couldn't believe. So it was believing in myself and knowing that, uh, that I really had to, I had to decide for myself to, to go after these things and self-improvement. Thanks, John. Uh, the next question that we have on the queue is from Andrew from JPEAK uh, for John and John first, and then we'll do Jody, then Blaze. Uh, so this is from Andrew at JPEAK in Vermont. He says, early in the series, we covered leadership versus management. In our readings and discussions, it seemed leaders possess more intangible qualities as visionaries that inspire whereas managers are more process-oriented at motivating tangible tasks. Are these differences enough to prevent a good manager from being a good leader or vice versa? As you moved up in the industry, did you see yourselves as one before the other? A great question. Uh, and, and John, you get to answer it first. Okay, well, I would, I would say the answers are yes and yes. Um, <laughs> The uh, obviously, you know, he got it by his first piece there that uh, inspirational leaders are ones people want to follow. You know, people say they don't want to be managed. They want to be led. Or you've heard the quotes that leaders lead people and managers manage things. And that's true. Um, but leaders today, especially with the diversity in the workforce and with the various generations now entering in the leadership, that successful leaders have to have the the character competence balance that you know Covey talks about a lot of uh, gurus talk about how if you think about the best leaders you've ever had and you start to do an inventory of what their skill sets were and you write them down and you say here's the things I loved about my best boss and and here's the things I I didn't like so much they they typically fall into those two buckets of character and competence so the character pieces would be the integrity caring trustworthiness compassionate believed in me, you know, passionate leader, all those things. And the competence just as important is the business acumen, the experience, the, you know, the best mechanic, the best whatever understood, um, you know, 
things better than anyone else. So it's important that you have both of those. But the reality is to move people, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I think it's really critical that people understand you can't fake competence. You have to have the skills. You know, you can, you can talk a good game, but if you can't deliver, then, then people right away will peg you as just someone who's got a lot of talk but no delivery. So you have to know the job. You've got to go to school. You've got to get the training, whether you get formal training or it's on-the-job training. You have to have the skills. But early in your career, I would say, yes, you have to be good at something. You have to kind of stand out at something. There's a lot of jack-of-all-trades in our industry and in a lot of industries. So, for example, let's say you're in marketing and you have a good knowledge of demographics or you understand brands, PR, you're really good at social media and you can make videos and creative content. So you've got a, a certain skill that you can really show that you can add value um, but you can get pigeonholed sometimes with that stuff. And so you have to broaden your skills. And, and the best advice I could give would be to go after your soft areas and where you could add more value, find ways where you could contribute more than you cost. And then as you progress, uh, I think it's important you keep your character skills high because your reputation is what's going to carry you farther down the road, um, regardless of how really – I've had – some, for example, some people that are just incredible lift mechanics. They're they're solid. I need them. I've got to have them. But I don't want them in leadership roles because they're toxic. They're not good in leadership roles. So I've got to find ways to use their skills and keep them engaged and, and hopefully keep them in a good place, but also realize that they're probably not going to lead. And I've had other people that may not have the best skills, but they are, they've got the ability to move people toward a purpose or toward a goal. And they have the ability to be trusted and, and have integrity and I don't have to worry about them stealing and that kind of stuff. So uh, I think both those skill sets are really critical as a, as a manager. As you move through the industry, I think it's important that you, you maintain continuous skill improvement, you know, practice Kaizen, all that stuff, and make sure your competence is there and you continue to grow that, but also that you can show character. Because I think today nobody wants to work for someone who's, you know, going to, uh, especially in leadership, that's going to scare people and, and make people not want to come to work. So character and competence, I, uh, I think that's the key. Thank you, John. Uh, Jody? Yeah, I'm, I'm with John in a lot of respects of everything he just said. I, I definitely support the character component um, as a leader versus you know, really the difference between a manager. Um, one of the plaques in my office that one of my staff gave me, um, it's a quote from John Quincy Adams. And it's, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Um, I, I really believe the difference between a manager, which is very tactical and focused on managing day-to-day, Whereas leadership is, you're really looking at the big picture. You're looking up, you're looking at the short-term, mid-term, long-term, you're looking at strategy, you're looking at opportunities. That's where I sort of find the defining difference. Um, and it's hard, quite frankly, to shift gears. I, I find myself kind of torn at days where I love being down into the granular and the weeds and really being hands-on with decision-making at the at the business level, but as a leader, you have to look up and, and think about the bigger picture of where you want to go and the path that you want to carve for your company. And 
it, it's hard to move from one role to the other. Um, I think you have to live in both worlds and be present in both worlds, but I don't think effective leaders can be down in the granular every day. Uh, I think it's super important that you have to look up and look at your core business, your future, um, what I call blue ocean opportunities. You really have to be looking up more as a leader, as a visionary, uh, in order to inspire your team to want to move to the next level. Thanks, Jody. Blake? Yeah, not a lot, lot to add. You know, John, I think, uh, with his phrase, competency and character, really I kind of nailed it. There's pitfalls, I think, if you try to overweight, you know, any of this. Um, you know, I think if someone gets too focused on, on vision and, and doesn't pay attention to some of the fundamentals of the business and the management of the business, then, it, you know, you've got a, a high risk of failure there from maybe you're Maybe you're inspirational, but the business is not not performing the way it wants, and so ultimately the people, the stakeholders in that business are gonna are gonna call you on that. And I agree with Jody. You can't get you know, like buried in the details, but you have to kind of have a sense of what are the important metrics that you you do need to manage on an ongoing basis, or things that you need to revisit on some kind of rotation to know you're in touch. You know, I think competency is important, but it doesn't mean you need to be the most competent person. And, and in fact, you can't be the most competent person in every uh, facet of the business. So I think knowing what you don't know and, and being willing to be uh, a constant learner, as John talked about, um, I think is a key to that. On the inspirational part, I think I think that comes through performance and how you conduct yourself and the character aspect that John talked about. And, and some of the people who I think I've seen in our company are the most inspirational. They're not necessarily out there um, like a Tony Robbins, like, you know, shouting out inspiration to people. They're just how they do their job, how they manage their people, how do they talk? So I, I guess I would just say there are a lot of different ways to be inspirational and to uh, and I think it's how you conduct yourself, um, the integrity you have, and how you treat the people that work for you. Uh, you know, inspiration, the inspirational part will come from that. On the same line of career growth, um, Brandon Schwartz from Heavenly submitted a question. He unfortunately could not be here with us today because his wife went into labor last night. Uh, so I'm going to ask on his behalf. With the majority of my career experience in mountain operations, would it be advantageous to shift into a different realm to challenge myself as well as gain different experience on my career journey? Maybe starting with Blaze. Well, I, I came up through mountain ops, so I'm a bit biased about this one. Um, you know, I don't think there's a, a need to shift. And in fact, you know, I've kind of evolved my thinking to where um, I think a great leader and COO can come from any aspect of the operation. And I think also, at least in our company, as, as our business becomes so large, it's a little bit harder for people to actually move from one discipline to another uh, because those, those areas that they're managing are so big. Um, it's, just, it's just hard for us to move people like that. But I think what you need to do is look at other, you know, create, a, even if you're in one, if you're in HR or in mountain ops or in marketing, you still have to develop a worldview 
and engage with the other parts of the business and learn about those businesses, uh, you know, kind of through even through operational interaction. And what, what we've seen uh, is now um, over the past few years is, you know, good leaders are coming out of every area and that we can help. We, we have programs to help people um, get exposure. So I think, you know, one thing to do is to is maybe go choose the people you're working for, go to your GM and, and ask if there are areas or projects or opportunities for me to get exposed to other parts of the business or other special projects that I can work on that, that helps me get there. But, uh, you know, we've had some major, uh, we've had people come out of mountain operations to go on to be COOs and we've kind of really done some, you know, somewhat groundbreaking things where we've had, uh, we've got a woman who came out of uh, food service and became uh, the COO of one of our largest resorts. And so I don't think it's necessarily where you are in, in what particular line of business, but uh, how you're working with your group, how you lead, how you develop, and how you get exposure to a broader sense of the business and participate in the business in, in, a, in a bit of a larger way. Thank you. Uh, Jody. Yeah, I would agree with, with Blaze that I think that it doesn't matter which uh, side of the business you come from. I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I for one, am an example. I came up through the marketing channel and, and am now the chief operating officer, so I'm very operations heavy at this point. And I think that the advantage to uh, just making yourself available to understanding and learning more aspects of the business is crucial and to make sure that people in your organization know what that you want extended uh, you know instruction or education around some of the other areas of the business and I think that a lot of us now are opening up those doors and giving people opportunities to learn more about different areas of the business so I think just being really aware of what you want to do um, and where you want to go should set the tone less less about where you're sort of housed as far as, you know, where your work, work is rooted at the moment. I agree with both what Blaze and Jody said. Uh, I would also add that the if there's an opportunity and you, and you feel like you're in your career and you're in one aspect, and you're thinking, gee, I need more dimension to what I can offer, and you want to be available in case, let's say, there's three people in front of you and you don't see growth in that area, uh, it certainly would behoove you to get as many transferable skills as you can. First of all, understanding more about the business. There's all kinds of resources online. There's Amazon books. There's community colleges. There's security management programs where you can dive deeper into other areas of the aspects of how Ascuria operates, because it really is 100 small businesses in one. It's not a single business unit. Um, I, when I talk to college kids, I, I tell them, hey, here's the subjects I wish I would have paid more attention to in college. I would have learned more about marketing and sales. I would have spent more time in accounting and taken a business law class or understood more about how risk management affects it. I would have uh, whether it's environmental education, hospitality, whatever's out there, there's opportunities to round out kind of what you bring to the party, if you will. The other thing I'll just throw out there is that the um, 
there's always areas in a company or there's initiatives that nobody wants and you need a champion for it. And this is a great opportunity if you're in that stage in your career and you feel like you've really pushed all the buttons you can in one area and you want to show that you have more to offer is to come toward those things. And I'll give you an example. Years and years ago, gosh, 15 years ago, we had this initiative that we were going to go green and we were going to have Project Green Sierra and it was going to be this great thing. And then we looked around the table and you could see everybody looking away like, don't look at me. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And the one gal uh, who was our PR in marketing stood up and said, this is really important to me and I, I would love to be our champion of this. And we kind of looked around the room and said, well, is she going to have influence with utilities and is she going to be able to influence this and that? And, and she said, yes, and I have, you know, I have the capacity to do it and I have the passion for it and became the green person and really kind of took us to the next level all the way till we won the Golden Eagle that year. And, and it was really a proud moment for her where she knew that, that her work had a lot to do with receiving that award and she was able to put that on her resume as she went out in the world and and became you know bigger and better in what she does so it's it's if there are things that nobody wants to do or uncomfortable areas or areas that are kind of falling down and you gravitate toward those and show the skills that you have um, it, it really does give you an opportunity to be recognized out of the group of all the other high talented folks so uh, again I would agree with everything that you don't have to be in 10 different areas to grow through this, but the more you can do, uh, if there's job sharing opportunities to go ride in a snowcat one night, uh, work in profit centers, we do it anyway, but jump in, you know, learn how to be an instructor, teach a class. Those are things that are going to benefit you down the road when it comes to decisions you have to make that involve other departments, and they're going to know that you've actually had experience there. Thanks, John. The PodSAM conversation continues after this quick thank you to supporting partner Access. Today's skier and rider is tech savvy. They've got Easy Pass. Hell, their dog has an RFID chip in them. Make sure you are delivering the frictionless and cashless convenience your customers expect, along with mobile-friendly skier tracking via Access RFID ticketing and access control. More info at teamaccess.com. That's teamaxess.com. The next theme that we have is uh, the uh, one that we're all thinking about a lot, which is just the changing nature of the industry. Uh, this one, uh, this question is also from Kyle, who, as we know, uh, isn't quite able to, uh, has a not working mic. So I'll, I'll read his question. We'll go uh, Blaze John Jody. Uh, with all the changes the ski industry has seen over the years, detachable chairs, snowmaking, biking, and alpine coasters. What do you think will be the next big change to come to the industry? Yeah, I think we're in the midst of one of the biggest changes right now, and I'm, I don't think we are have seen it settle yet and what its after effects will be. So I think the uh, the consolidation of resort, you know, not, not necessarily the business consolidation of resorts, but the creation of these uh, – very affordable multi-resort pass products is obviously in full bloom right now and I'm not sure uh, and I think it's a dramatic change that we're going to have to deal with and I'm not sure we have really seen what that means yet and how we have to respond to that as it starts to take shape. I think it's it's doing a lot of good things um, in terms of uh, 
making skiing more affordable, giving people multi-resort options. Um, but I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think that's that's one big change that we're actually in. That's probably one of the biggest changes we've seen uh, in the past five or ten years. And I, I'm not sure we know how that's, you know, that's turning out yet. I think the other pieces are really, you know, just in terms of what what's going on in the world with technology and social connections and personalization. And I, I think that how we use technology to continue to personalize the experience. I think people, the customer is the boss and, and that's becoming more and more so. And um, I think businesses are going to continue to have a, to develop a more personal connection uh, to the customer. I think you're going to see the, the business move. It's, it's already moving away from mass marketing to um, individual marketing, very individual approaches where I think the, that we're going to see a, a point where the resorts and each customer have a one-on-one -on -one relationship where you're really, you know, customizing their their visit to your resort and setting things up in advance for that. And I so I think personalization of the experience uh, through technology, and I think the next piece is compression of time. I think there's still I think our business is still lagging in uh, in the processes around ski school and ski rental and ticket sales. I mean, we still have people going to ticket windows. Nobody goes to the airport to buy an airplane ticket. And I think the ski school and rental processes are longer. Even though we've improved upon them, they're not as fast as I think people want them to be given the competitive set outside of our industry. So I think those are going to be big changes that we're going to see. The other one I think I, I kind of I puzzle about is as the passes have become more and more affordable, the equipment buy is still not in that realm yet. So I'm kind of waiting to see. I mean, we've seen people move to demo skis when they take their trip and not carry their equipment. But I, I still think there might be a more uh, kind of a more of a major shift in that area where people may be moving away from owning equipment just given what I think is still a cost barrier there for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I, those are kind of things that I kind of look out and see at this point. Um, well, I would agree with Blaze on the technology piece. I think the, I think we're going to be taken over by artificial intelligence and robots. So uh, I'm kidding. The, um, I, I think from a technology perspective, what's really important is that we see the speed of change and I think transactional, uh, I would agree with Blaze on the piece that, I, in fact, I wrote down your quote, nobody goes to the airport to buy a plane ticket. That's so true. I think the as the speed of things goes, I, I spent some time with one of my boys running around Seattle, and I, I said, you got any money in your pocket? He said, I don't need it. I've got my phone. And I went, well, how's how's that going to work? And he said, well, I've got Apple Pay, and I've got this, and I've got that. And, and I followed him around the city, and we spent a lot of money on his phone. <laughs> And I just realized that the ease of transactions is something that we've got to solve because Amazon has made one-click buying so easy and we're getting so used to that and that people have that expectation now. And there's a lot of – obviously, they've got a lot of layers in their company to be able to make that, that smooth and with all the protections needed with credit cards and everything else. But 
easing that transaction, taking all that hassle out of purchasing, buying, all the everything that goes with that is something that we've got to embrace as an industry and figure out because um, other industries are going to beat us to it if we don't. And then the other thing I would just say that another huge change we're facing, obviously, with demographics is with the boomers all retiring and the millennials really not completely gravitating toward the sport like we thought is that is that next generation the gen gen z what are we doing how are we going to embrace them uh they're the next great hope but it's a very diverse generation and i think our industry is still stuck a little bit in the uh you know we've we've definitely seen improvement in gender in our industry where a lot of women in leadership roles i think is great i think we're still pretty much white dominated and need to realize if you go out and look at the lift line and see the color change that reflects our communities that are coming to our resorts especially out here in the west and uh, we've seen a 25 percent shift in between white and non-white over the last five years here at sierra based on our research and so that's a significant change in terms of ethnic opportunity and are we trying to sell the sport to them the way we came to it and I think we really need to do our homework there and, and understand and, and do some some digging there to find out how we can have a sport that's going to have a, a longevity with this new incoming generation. Thanks, John. Jody? Yeah, when I, I mean, it, this is a really interesting question. I think, you know, the changes in the ski and snowboard industry, um, I think a little bit looking back in history, you know, a couple of the lovers that I've seen really move the needle. I mean, if you look back to, you know, as far back as 96, we've been pretty flat as it relates to uh, just industry growth in general. Um, I participated on the snowboarding initiative for NSAA, and I mean, our numbers are flat with the exception of a couple of years in there, 10-11, where we had some spikes, and that was generally due to, due to snow conditions. But when I really look back at what, where we found growth has been in snowboarding, which was very youth-centric and, and really intermediate-level skiing, if you will, the resorts that were catering to families and intermediate terrain was where we really saw some growth bubbles. So I think that, um, you know, both John and Blaze pointed in the direction that I'm looking at, and that's more uh, growth is going to be seen in the millennials and the next generation and what those, what those kids are looking for. I, I'm like John Rice. I have two millennials and they don't use cash. Everything is Apple pay. And um, I mean, I don't think they've been to a bank in years. Uh, they take a picture with their phone, and um, I think it's that mindset of of how we're really going to start to see the industry changes. They're very independent. They're very socially conscious, and I think that those are the areas that we should be focused on that will be the drivers of what this industry is going to look like in the future. Um, I, I think they're looking for, you know, how to get away, how to do more of a backcountry experience, and you know, to John's point, it's that diversity of our user is going to be quite different. So I think the next big thing is really looking at the consumer um, first and foremost and, and what what inspires them to want to get that outdoor experience. What's troubling when you look at the industry is that participation levels and frequency are what are stagnated and declining, and we need to get people out more frequently and, and really um, – I think it's got to be in the kids. We got to look to youth 
I'm just going to add one thing, Jody. I, I was last week. I was over with Forest Service, and we were doing a little tour of went to Sugar Bowl. We came to Boyle, and we went into Woodward, and everyone sat there with their mouth open and taking <laughs> pictures, going, "Oh my God, there's the future right there." Yeah. These kids are jumping on trampolines and and doing cartwheels, and you know, fifty-four dollars a head, and they are having the time of their life. And then we went in and Chris gave us a little sort of an overview of what's happening with Woodward and the philosophies and, and how bringing the outdoors in and the indoors out. And I just walked out of there going, I, I need to drag my senior team over here and we just need to observe for a couple hours and just see where the future is. Cause uh, it's, I was just really impressed. And I think we've got to really look at diversity of activity and that it doesn't all have to be done out on the snow. So, um, Anyway, that's just the big awe I had in the last seven days. So That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, our next question is from Anya from Lake Louise in Alberta. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we go ahead. Um, so my question is actually uh, about the resort and business consolidation that Blaze and Jody just brought up. Um, so it's how are the emerging ski hill conglomerates and super passes such as Mountain Collective, Icon, and Epic, shaping the future of the industry? Are the smaller hills facing the choice of either joining the larger cooperatives or missing the boat in this major transition? Or I guess as a third option, are the effects of these multi-resort conglomerates being uh, overstated? Yeah, who wants to take that one? Well, I, I'll take, I don't know if I can answer it all, and I'm surely I can't answer it unbiased, but, um, you know, I, I think, how they're shaping the industry, I, I talked about a little bit. I mean, I think there's a lot of positive in it for the consumer in the sense that it's taken the price of the season's pass, you know, down and, you know, made for the destination skier and the person who's going to ski a fair amount has made it more affordable. Um, I think what we've seen with the the passes as well is, you know, you're creating, uh, you know, you're creating customer loyalty and you're creating a commitment this year, for example, we had a low snow year, a lower than normal snow year in, in several of our, our resort areas, you know, where we have a lot of resorts. Colorado uh, started off very slow. Tahoe had a very slow start until the end. And Utah, I think, similarly. And yet our, you know, our visitation was not down like it would have been in prior years, I think, without the past program. And I think part of that is people you know, are making the commitment to ski and, and they have the pass. And I, I think they're becoming more committed because of that. When we created the Epic Pass years ago, we, you know, we kind of had an internal, you know, call that said, we want to see every skier have a season's pass. And, you know, when you think of what the season's pass, you know, kind of represents, you know, you think of people like, I'm a pass holder, there's kind of a, a sense of pride and affiliation that comes with that. And I think that it translates in a positive way for our businesses. So, you know, it's, it's been, we have 750,000 pass holders now in our company. And, you know, obviously we, it's really helped our company from a business standpoint. Um, you're seeing other uh, groups, you know, coming together. So there's more, options for people. And, and actually we see that as a really good thing. I think the more pass options people have, I think it's, it's better for the whole industry. And I, and again, I, I'm not sure we've actually seen how this fully plays out yet. So um, that's that in terms of the, you know, does this do smaller Hills need to join? You know, I don't, I, I, I don't think that, that a, 
a large pass affiliation is for everybody. And uh, I'm hoping that the smaller resorts that are not not affiliated, you know, will will be okay. I don't know how that's going to play out yet. I think their bigger challenges are often in weather, if they're at low elevation, and a lot of the smaller resorts are, and also the cost of capital. So I think this I think the past issue is only one issue facing those resorts, and I think it's it's critical to the industry that they survive. I'm not sure, uh, you know, what the full answer to that is. I'll jump in, Paul. Um, you know, I go back to you on this question. It's, it's, it's a tough one because I think like, like Blaze said, it's, it's playing out and we're all watching it. But if you go back to just what problem are we solving for? Um, and that is aging out baby boomers you know, climate change, we have all of these things facing our industry. And if, if super passes are what get people affordably into the sport and exploring, I think it does solve for that problem. It gives people an opportunity to um, explore and experience the outdoors um, and not just at one resort, but at multiple resorts. And uh, as an example, I bought a multi-resort pass this year just to try it for myself, having been in the ski industry forever, always skiing the mountain that I either worked at or ran. And I can tell you, having that experience this year was amazing. Being able to um, hit some bucket list resorts and really having the freedom to ski around and um and have new experiences was, was pretty awesome. So I think that giving the opportunity for the masses of people to explore different experiences is key to falling back in love with the sport or picking the sport back up or whatever your position is. And I mean, at powder, our, our core values are, you know, our brand belief is that we were founded on living by and doing the things that we love with the people we love and skiing and snowboarding and being a sports and, and it's grounded in our soul. And I think that the more we can share that with the more, with more people, the better. So I think that, um, you know, whatever the outcome is, it is opening up new doors um, to grow our business. So I'll just throw something in here. First of all, Jody, thank you for buying a powder lines pass. Cause I'm sure China <laughs> peak and uh, Sierra were on your bucket list. So thank you. Um, <laughs> I would agree that the uh, there's a lot of good for the consumer, and I was asked this question by a college class recently, and they it was kind of a gotcha question, and I said, well, you know, guys, it, it, it's not an easy answer. I think it's it's great. It gives people a range of choices. I agree with Blaze. It, it does. Um, if you look at the price of day visitation, you know, passes gives you an opportunity and a feeling that you're connected to a lot of different places. You can still have your home resort, but but you have the ability if you want to take a road trip or or hit one of those destinations that's that's within your scope now. So I think it's great. Um, there was an interesting comment made by one of the senior executives of Altera when that deal was first put together, and he said, this is going to be really great for you small independent resorts. You're going to have more opportunity right now to really carve out your niche and give people an alternative if you see it that way. If you see it as this competition is going to push you out, then you know, you're going to have to really look at that. And and if you, you kind of look at where people are today, I know just, again, following my millennials around, they used to be in my house and I could use them to learn what's cool and not. And they tell me what ads not to run. And now um, 
I'll go with them somewhere, and whether it's a it's a little one-off brewery or a or the coffee shop down the street that's got the hip story versus the you know the Starbucks, they'll they'll show me why they prefer to give their money to an independent. So I think there's opportunity for all of us here. And um, Sierra, we belong to a, a smaller group, the Powder Alliance, which it does have some benefit to us. It's not huge, but it does give us a story to tell that there is value added with your pass that you buy here if this is your home resort. Um, so I would agree that there is a lot of positives to to that. And it, we are still somewhat in transition and learning as we go here as to where it's all going to end up. But uh, yeah, it's not a, it's not a yes or no answer, that's for sure. But I, I would say there's opportunity for on, on all sides here for the consumer and for the resorts. That's really great. Thank you very much. Um, our, our last theme is around just growth uh, and resort growth in particular. And our question comes from Andrew Roy in Eldora, Colorado. Andrew? Sure. Good afternoon. Uh, what are some ways you market your resort to draw never, ever guests? All right. Um, well, this is John. I'll uh, I'll just start by saying you know, we looked at a group years ago came into our Booth Creek Resort group to challenge us with ways to widen the portal. The portal of entry into our sport has gotten so narrow and you had to have the time and you had to have the money and you had to have the wherewithal and the four-wheel drive. And, and what we're seeing in the last few years, of course, at least out here in the West, we're seeing uh, unbelievable amounts of people heading to snow for the first time and just coming to play in the snow. Just just make a snowman throw a snowball that turns into sledding and then eventually hopefully tubing. We call those experiences low thrill, high skill. So there's, or excuse me, low skill, high thrill. So there's no skill needed. Um, you're not a spectator. You're actually doing something, but you are in a somewhat of an uncontrolled slide down a track. And our goal is to then migrate you to a um, what I would call a high skill, high thrill uh, experience, which would be that you're on the mountain and you're actually controlling your turns. And so um, certainly there's an opportunity to get people in the door with that first time experience in the snow. And hopefully it's not one where they get a ticket or have their car towed for parking on Highway 80 or 50. <laughs> uh, we had this discussion last week with the Forest Service. It's a huge problem in the West with the ethnic diversity we're seeing um, folks on any weekend and especially on three-day holidays just coming up in droves uh, and coming into scary parking lots and getting out with their plastic saucers and one way to look at them is oh they're taking up space you know they're we, they need to go away another way to look at it and we had this discussion last week over at boreal soda springs is you know it accounts for 60,000 tuber visits so uh, these are future folks we can get in our industry if we show them the way and, and widen that portal and look at pricing opportunities and, and finding out what their needs are. And, you know, they don't have the equipment, they don't have the clothes. Let's look at the, where those opportunities are. What we've been doing here is focusing on folks that have the wherewithal, they do have the time, they want to step up in social class. We've, we've gone to Silicon Valley and particularly to, to the Intels and the, and the Facebook and Google folks and said, Hey, come on up, have a day on us. We we know that they're value conscious, so we will take a, a little bit of a walk on the price sometimes to get them up here for that first experience off peak, make sure that we cater to them, that they have a great experience, and then show them the way that they can come into our sport and not have them feel 
that they can't come in because they don't speak the language or they're not talented enough or they don't have the clothes. So it's really breaking down those barriers um, and widening that portal um, to getting them in. And then we, we subscribe to the three times is the magic number. So if you get them to come the third visit, and so the incentives for the instructors are all based on making sure the first experience was great. And then with a the CRM, reach back to the people saying, come on back. We'll give you a discount on your next visit and then to the third visit. And then if we can get you three, there's a good chance you're going to stay with the sport. So that's kind of how we see it here. Great. Thanks. Jody, did you want to jump in? Sure. Yeah. Just a little bit onto what John was saying. Um, John, I don't know if you were able to see Planet Kids in full motion at Soda Springs when you guys were over there, but it's a program we built um, gosh, I think a decade ago now. And it was really inspired by watching, I went over one day and I was talking to my area manager and I was curious why little kids were playing with buckets in the snow and not, and did not have lift tickets on. And, um, you know, due to legalities and, you know, 42 inches and above for tubing toes. And we, you know, to John's point, there was so many barriers in the way that parents actually couldn't give us their money to pay for their small children to utilize our services. So we developed a program called Planet Kids. I was, it was inspired on a trip. I was um, on a moving carpet trip in Europe and I, I recognized in Europe, all the families were with the kids while they were learning to ski and, and experience snow for the first time. So we developed this program called Planet Kids where it's a single portal entry. Um, we took out all of the barriers. You didn't have to pay extra for the rentals. It was a very seamless flowing process where you just walked in, you grabbed a board and boots, you went out and you just explored this terrain. And a lot of it was similar to terrain-based teaching. And it was just really low barriers and, and fun and playful um, volcanoes for kids to just climb up and down and tube wherever they, you know, in these areas. And we had little carousels and whatnot in this area, which started out with about an acre footprint, now a ginormous part of the resort. It's actually a third of the revenue and income that comes from the resort. And I think the key here is just really lowering your barriers. Um, and, and I think the other part of it, one thing that we're finding on the Woodward side is that everybody's good enough to do our sports. And really it's the perception we're putting out in our marketing that makes us appear, you know, we put out all these powder shots and, you know, really good, beautiful people skiing. And it's it's hard to relate for everyone. So I think it's how we position, um, you know, the perception of the barriers that we put out there. And then I, I think another big one for us on the Woodward side is content. We now are producing um, multiple web series and getting our brands out there and really telling our stories to the masses helps people become aware that you can be good enough to go um, and really they can start experiencing your brands through your content. So I, I'm a big believer in, in getting out there through content. That's great. Blaze, do you want to quickly uh, add, a, add a sentence or two to this one? Um, you know, we've done some similar things to what John and Judy have talked about, Jody have talked about, maybe not as extensive as Planet Kids. That sounds pretty cool. Um, you know, I think summer is a gateway to winter. We've expanded summer, and we're seeing people discover the mountains and being on the mountains uh, through uh, 
the development of our Epic Discovery program, which is, you know, we're seeing a lot of people and they're not winter people. It's not winter people coming back uh, in, the, in the mountains for summer. It's a whole new uh, user. And we're hearing often from them, oh, wow, I should come back in the winter. I bet it's fun. And we're making connections with those people in terms of how they can come back and trying to make sure that they're going to get in the right programs when they do come back. And, you know, I'm not sure we got that fully evolved yet, but we're seeing a really good traction in that. You know, our other focus is around kids in all of our resort areas. And we've taken what I think used to be traditionally like fifth grade programs to introduce kids to skiing. And we've really extended it to all elementary school grades. So we've kind of made the universe bigger in school programs and we're seeing a, a good traction in that as well. And I, I guess the last thing that we're doing is, is not so much, it's not marketing yet, but, but it's research. We're doing a lot of research, uh, particularly on, on women and different uh, ethnic and cultural groups in terms of their participation and what are their barriers. Uh, I think John pointed out we are predominantly a white male sport, and to some degree the experience has morphed into, uh, you know, being very biased that way. And so we're we're learning a lot, you know, what women may be looking for in the experience that's different than what we have, or what we've not focused on. And the same thing for for other ethnic and cultural groups that are not participating in the sport yet. Um, and I think you know that's something that's evolving. I don't, I'm not sure we have, we have some answers and some very interesting uh, outcomes from that, but I, I'm not sure we fully developed the programs to answer those things. Thanks a lot, Blaze. Um, we have our last question is from uh, Joe from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, Joe, do you want to ask your question? I'll ask our, uh, our mentors to keep their uh, responses relatively brief because we're coming to the end of our, our uh, time here. So, Joe, take it away. Sure. I was curious about what successful partnerships your mountain has made with the local community and or different government agencies uh, such as school districts, parks and rec departments, YMCA's, Park Service, Fish and Game Commission. Have you been able to create relationships that have mutually benefited both parties? Maybe we'll go uh, John, Blaze, Jody for this round. Okay. Um, it's critical to your success to be part of your community. Uh, at Sierra, we kind of narrowed down everything we give to to two categories, education and youth recreation, and we find that that has worked really well for us. First of all, we get to say no to a lot of people, but, but we tell them that we really want to support education. We do a, a program called the Straight A Program where any kid that gets straight A's in the school district gets a season pass and we found that that's been a great motivator for the students as well as the teachers as well as the parents we've seen whole families sign up after the kids got their pass um, so the, the relationship we've earned with the school district is really important to us and we've received many friends of the education award and it's it's paid dividends huge dividends when it comes to youth recreation all we try to sponsor every team that any employee has a kid on any, whether it's cheerleading, soccer, race, little league, you name it, we try to sponsor those teams and make sure our banner's hanging on the on the fence and the people know that we really care about the that youth get off the couch and, and get engaged and have fun and, and participate and learn sports and, and that way obviously that leads into them perhaps wanting to come up to the resort as well. So 
law enforcement, uh, anything you can think of, wildlife, anything you can think of that's good in your community to support is very positive. You, your question was about uh, schools and race and, and um, park and rec, and I would say that those are really important ones at YMCA. Those are important relationships, uh, service clubs, anything you can do to it. You can do a lot of in-kind stuff. It's not all money you can do. You can give tickets to their fundraisers or give first-time lessons to kids, that kind of stuff. So, yes, big believer in that support. Yeah, we are as well. I mean, I think everybody is. And, um, you know, I don't, know, I don't really have a lot to add. I guess, you know, uh, you have to be a part of the community. Um, you know, and I think it goes beyond just, you know, charitable giving, I think it's participation and engaging with these agencies and, and, and with your school districts and, you know, really, you know, being a participant, you know, I, our GMs and COOs, um, we, we kind of laugh in a way that, you know, a large part of their job is really political and, uh, you know, making the relationships, making sure they're healthy and listening to our stakeholders and, and also making sure we're communicating back with them so uh, it, it's it's important it's not it's it's important for your business but it's also it's the right thing to do um, for us a lot of our resorts are the big economic uh, driver in communities and I think it's important for us to um, you know be aware of that and um, you know kind of handle that that role appropriately in terms of our participation and our persona in the community. Jody? Yeah, I'll just wrap it up with a couple that I'm pretty passionate about. We're, uh, we are now with the Woodward program um, doing a community garden, and so we're, we're sourcing our food locally, um, which, you know, helps the community. It creates a lot of goodwill amongst, and it's more healthier for the kids as well. So we're, we're feeding at our, camp, our biggest camp this year, locally sourced food. Um, and working with the local community to grow that garden. So I think, you know, in the end, having kids be conscious of our environment is huge for the future. Um, that's, that's kind of thing one. And thing two that we're, we're doing here throughout Powder is um, we've joined Camber Outdoors, um, which, you know, the mission there is to achieve equality for all women in the outdoors from the backcountry to the boardroom. So I think um, those two programs are, are really powerful. Um, also, I'm pretty proud of what Boreal is doing with their High Fives Foundation. Um, they do a Feel Good Friday uh, where uh, part of the proceeds every Friday go toward um, that foundation. Just to add one thing, Blaze, you triggered something. The one thing we, we have done in the past, I haven't made it mandatory, but in the past it was that if you're in a leadership role here, you have to be involved in the community somehow, whether you volunteer for one day or, or full-time to some cause that you believe in or whether you coach a little league team or whether you are in a men's club or on the you know the various organizations in town to really get into the community and participate and get people to know who we are and uh, it, coaching the, what they learn coaching with parents and politics and bad umpires and and lousy uh, you know all those things that happen <laughs> parent politics teaches them a ton of skills that they can then bring back to the resort and understand that they're doing the same thing. It's just with a different age group. But anyway, I, I agree that getting our people into the community is really key for themselves as well. One of the things that uh, going back to the uh, employee engagement piece we talked about earlier, one, one of the surprising things to us 
early on in our employee engagement survey was that um, community involvement um, and being a good community citizen was high, like one of the highest points on the list of all of our employees. And so, you know, we went from there and created a lot of different volunteer opportunities and volunteer days uh, and, and also, um, you know, created a lot of different programs with different groups and saw that uh, response very positively in, in subsequent employee engagement surveys that our employees really were we're proud of that part of our company, and that was really an important factor. Appreciate that. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate the opportunity to facilitate uh, this uh, summit series for you and with you for the last several months. Uh, great call today. Really appreciate it. And Jody, thanks for the Camber shout out. And uh, I will toss it over to Olivia for her closing thoughts. Some quick house cleaning items before Olivia sends us across the finish line. This does wrap up the six episode run of the Summit Series, but that's not the end. The landscape of mountain leadership is continuing to change and in an effort to open up the avenues of shared knowledge, Sam is gearing up to launch year two of the Summit Series. As PodSAM listeners know, this program is an effort to connect the next generation of leaders of the mountain resort industry with the leaders of today. If you'd like to get involved, Visit saminfo.com slash summit series for more information. Thanks again to Mountain Guard and Access RFID Ticketing for their support of PodSAM. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additionally, I'd like to invite any PodSammers that haven't checked out my main pod, Wintry Mix, to do so. The end of episode six is also the end of me editing pods for Sam. I'm transitioning into more of a podcasting advisory role as the SAM team takes over the keys and jumps into learning some new formats. I think they'll do great. Getting this podcast started and effectively archiving the audio that the first Summit series generated will hopefully pay dividends down the road for the industry we are all committed to. I'm Alex Kaufman. My job here is done, and Olivia Rowan is going to wrap us up. Thanks so much for all of your participation from the mentors and the mentees and to Paul for facilitating and Sarah for um, organizing and, and giving us our vision. And, um, and that's it. That's a wrap. We, we made it through. Thank you so much for everybody's time. Thanks, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you.